You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's Talk Radio Show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. All right, in this episode, we go inside the huddle with countertenor beefcake Randall Scotting to talk about Senesino, lute song, and weightlifting. And then the Mets' 23-24 season is out. There's at least one name missing from the roster, and it rhymes with Shmildar Shmodbrazakov. Plus, in the two-minute trail, yeah, yeah, we didn't forget Opera Philadelphia and their season announcement, too. I I just, I love teasing Philly. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, click follow. Apple Podcasts, hit the plus sign, send us a voice memo. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get the OBS beer coaster. You're going to get the OBS lapel pin just for sharing your opinion. It's that easy. Oliver Camacho, great to see you. I am, I don't know what's happened to me. Like, you know that I'm a fan of tennis, but right. I just, I'm getting deeper and deeper into it. Like I'm watching every tournament. Like Are you really? There was, there was a time in my life where I watched like three tournaments a year. That's crazy. And then, you know, maybe in my, the third decade of my life, I started watching all four of the Grand Slams. And then maybe in my fourth decade, I started watching some of the, uh, Masters series tournaments. Now I'm like watching every tournament that's on. And um, <laughs> take yeah. away that man's cable. Yeah. Um, yesterday, uh, we're recording on Monday as always. Uh, Carlos Alcaraz, who is destined to be the number one player as soon as Novak Djokovic uh, starts to get old. Um, he like pulled his hamstring oh, no. in the middle of the uh, final set, uh, and like he was clearly going to win. And then, like, he, you see him pull up yeah. lame with this injury, but he finished the match. And Oof. there were moments where you're like, okay, he's just going to hit his way out of this game. He's going to, like, mm-hmm. he's just taking big swings, like, very low percentage shots right. uh, just to, like, end the point quick. And sometimes he nailed, he, like, broke his opponent, Cameron Nori, like, I think 40 love or something like that, just, like, swinging hard at the serve. And um, it was shocking. It was like, oh, there's no way he's going to win. And he came close to winning, but he lost. So anyway, Carlos, I hope you recovered that hamstring of yours. We should play tennis together one day. I I would love to do that. I'm terrible at it. I told you I was in a (laughs) gay league. I was in a gay league and I was the worst player. So I always played the second to worst player. (laughs) Always room for improvement. Weston Williams, how's life? Oh, it's pretty good. I have some sports news. I attended for the first time a community dodgeball uh, a match last week. And really? I think dodgeball might be the perfect sport. And I'm frankly shocked. It is not all over ESPN, the Olympics, yeah. everywhere you look. Because it's, yeah. it's got the brutality. You have the throwing of the ball. You've got strategy. When can you block? When you can mm-hmm. When can you catch? catch. How do you yep. set people up on the board? Uh, what's the timing of things? And there's all these little intricate rules I wasn't aware of because the last time I played dodgeball was approximately middle school. <laughs> Great exercise. Fantastic. There is now a game clock in baseball. You know, there's some things you never think you're going to see in your lifetime. Now there's a game clock in baseball. Major League Baseball games are now routinely like two and a half hours long, which is crazy. I'm not going to get to the intricacies of how it works. What I will say is that Ashley has a brilliant segment idea 
which ties into this. And we're going to do it next month when Major League Baseball has its opening day at Ooh. the end of March. So stick around for that one. More importantly, Holding your stick breaths, around everybody. <laughs> right now for Inside the Huddle. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. So today's interview guest is countertenor Randall Scotting. And while you're listening to this interview, I encourage you to just stop what you're doing and go to your browser and just type in his name into your search engine and then click on that images tab. And you're like, what? <laughs> He's a countertenor? Yeah. Um, so you can listen to his, to this interview and you can even watch some of his videos where he's um, oh yes, barely dressed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but not to objectify him. Actually, I first learned about Randall uh, when his publicist sent me his debut album hmm. and asked if I'd be interested in interviewing. I was like, yeah, whatever. I get so many albums sent to me by so many different publicists. But like I popped it in. I was like, oh, wow, this is actually really good. And so I did end up interviewing him. So we already have established a rapport. And Randall is in Chicago right now working on the triptych premiere of Proximity mm -hmm. uh, coming later on this month at, or in March. Yeah, you're yeah, listening March. in March at yeah. later, Lyric Opera Chicago. So let's sample a little bit of Randall's debut solo album, the album is called The Crown, Arias for Senesino, and it's filled with a bunch of rarities. This is one by Giovanni Antonio Jai from the opera Eumene. Just a little sample of the singing of my guest, Randall Scotting. Welcome to OBS. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> so um, we're going to talk in a minute about your new album, which comes out on the heels really of this one. Like it feels like you came out with two albums in the span of a year, which is sort of a, a quick turnaround in the record industry. I don't know. How do you, ex how do you explain that? Yeah, it's actually been within six months, which has been pretty intense. Um, the reason is because the second album we recorded in the heart of the pandemic, and it's just uh, we decided to release the OAE album first as, a, as the debut album. And then we had this other one already. Okay. Uh, so it just sort of was able to come out very quickly. We didn't have to, to go record it after. Well, I talked to you about The Crown for my other job. And uh, for those people who didn't hear that conversation, um, the summary is that you did a lot of research, a lot of research on music of Senesino uh, that wasn't Handel. Uh, and you recorded, I mean, you made up, there are probably a lot of world premieres on this, on that yeah. recording, The Crown. All except for one aria. And I thought they were all going to be world premieres. And I found out someone, someone jumped me on one of the arias and recorded it before I could. So unfortunately, there's one that's not. But the rest, the other 13 arias on the album are all modern premieres. And maybe it's that your voice type, um, your your tessitura, your your range uh, matches that of um, Senesino based on what we know about him. Yeah, that was the whole idea in uh, putting together this program. I've sung the handle roles, quite a few of them, 
uh, and I have more upcoming. So um, that all just fit me very well, both dramatically and vocally. And so then I wanted to look at what else was written for this singer with the theory, the idea being that whatever else was composed for him should also fit my voice very well. And I was pleasantly surprised to find that it did. So it made <laughs> a, nice, a nice experience recording that album. Well, I got a lot of enjoyment out of listening to it, uh, mainly because I was discovering your singing. And I said this before, but um, you have a very legato technique and you uh, always seem to sing on the breath and uh, your color is always warm, uh, which is, you know, we don't necessarily get that all the time from our countertenors, which is also something that I like very, um, what's the word? non bel canto technique you know i think that singing non bel canto can be very effective uh for certain affects mm -hmm. uh, but it seems like your brand is to just approach everything from from bel canto well i think that just feels right to me to sort of have this connection to the body while i'm singing to feel like it's really sort of not just um for lack of a better description, kind of the, the head up, you know, like the throat up. I feel sometimes like the sort of choral style of countertenor singing is, is a little bit lacking in this full connection. And I just, I love feeling this, like my body behind me and under me while I'm singing. So I think if that leads to, you know, what you'd call a bel canto technique, then also it allows me to sort of embody the drama, which I think is really important to me and to the way I approach singing. So um, sometimes in this other, other way, this other technique, it's hard to, you have nuance and you can have ornament and style and all of that, but it's harder to have actual visceral drama in the sound, which is something that I enjoy putting in there. Well, you're the one who keeps saying body now. <laughs> so it's a perfect pivot to talking about, um, I don't know if you are like countertenor 2.0 or if there might be other people like David Hansen who began this new era of the countertenor uh, who are much more, God, this makes me sound like such a jerk, you know, masculine men, for lack of a better word. You know, mm -hmm. I think that countertenors can be delicate and can be uh, a little bit androgynous. And that's sort of, that's sort of the point sometimes of this music. Yeah. Um, but you really embrace, you know, your physicality uh, you're a weightlifter, and mm -hmm. uh, there's this famous production you did with West Edge Opera, and there's all these videos of you out there, um, basically wearing a G-string. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not shy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know. I guess can I ask you about like this is you know you take care of yourself. You know that's that's its own thing. But are do you lean into this? You know, is this sort of like also part of your brand? Yeah, I think that one, so, you know, the countertenor voice, it's this sort of juxtaposition of like male body with like this higher, more typical female range is what people would assume just sort of being stereotypical about it. And the wonderful thing now is that we have all this fluidity, you know, this sort of gender fluidity that can play into the voice part. And I think authenticity, which can, re can be, you know, people being more gender fluid and feeling comfortable as a countertenor. But for me, authenticity is being more just like the masculine guy who grew up in Colorado. That is me being my authentic self. And I just sort of bring that also to the way that I 
sing countertenor. And, and I'm very happy to put on a dress and to play gender fluid parts. There's no kind of issues or or block but, for me. But, but nobody will ever mistake you. <laughs> yeah, right. yes, yeah. Probably not going to be playing too many female roles, you know, not, but I'm open to it. Um, but it's just for me, this this idea, I had to think about this quite a bit because of, with the countertenor voice, you do, um, you know, it's not like a baritone or something where you have all these sort of parts of the the archetypes of the character built into the voice and it all just sort of fits together this sort of qualities of all of that as a countertenor it's a little bit more um amorphous and fluid and so i had to actually kind of consider it and think no this is me this is my authentic self i am just sort of more of a um like a i guess a masculine guy and that's where i'm comfortable and so then singing things like julius caesar and these heroic roles are just a natural fit for me both vocally and and physically i think what you see on stage so hmm. yeah you're much more believable as like the warrior hero when you're what are you six two six four six three yeah six three yeah, yeah and two. what you weigh like 225 pounds or something like that or like well 235 when okay. i'm really in great shape now well, i'm a little softer <laughs> i mean i don't want people to start googling photos of you but if you're interested they're out yeah. there everybody <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was and bodybuilding was something too that i was i was a little bit hesitant to delve into as a countertenor just because i didn't know how people would receive this kind of like muscled body you know in and then in contrast with the higher voice um just because it's not something that has been out there and so and i was also worried about ramifications vocally like if building all this muscle is gonna affect my actual singing technique but um i finally got to a point where i just decided to go for it because i wanted to be you know more fit and uh pleasantly it's all played well and i actually i sing better i have a kind of stronger technique and more support and feel more in my body as i keep saying um so yeah it's all kind of come together in a nice way for me hmm. well um coincidentally um you're one of your co-stars uh of the elio gabalo uh was cavalli opera yeah. uh, from west edge opera uh will be in chicago to sing um evangelist uh in saint matthew passion that derek chester who's, oh. an, who's another um very in shape <laughs> yeah. yeah that was kind of the theme of that opera specifically yeah. yeah not not much clothing and and in shape people yeah <laughs> that's what they wanted <laughs> so right now we're talking uh in chicago you're actually in chicago even though we're doing this on zoom uh, you are here because you're uh, covering in this world premiere triptych of operas uh, at Lyric Opera Chicago. Um, it's called Proximity. Um, it's three operas in one evening, and they're all world premieres. Caroline Shaw, John Luther Adams, and I forget who the third composer is. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, that's not the one you're working on. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not my piece. <laughs> um, yeah. um, but you just revealed to me that you are, there's not a complete performing edition yet. It's still being created. Is that what's going on? There are small changes happening in rehearsal. I mean, there is an edition, but they're basically melding all three of these operas together. So it's sort of scene by scene rather than presenting one opera, you know, and then the next. They're all they're all connecting, which is interesting because they're 
they're on very different themes. I mean, it is this idea of proximity and, and connecting with people. That is the theme that that's that's threaded through it all. But um, like our opera, the proximity, Caroline, uh, the uh, it's called Four Portraits. This this piece by Caroline Shaw, which makes up part of proximity, is sort of about uh, technology and how it's meant to connect us. But actually, when there are glitches in technology and things, it it can be it creates a lot of distance and it can be very challenging to actually connect with someone authentically through all of that. Uh, and then there's another one, one of the other um, operas is about inner city gang uh, and gun violence in Chicago. So how these things will all be blended together uh, is, is still to be seen, but Yuval Sharon is, is directing and he's uh, wonderful. I've really enjoyed watching him work and we've um, known each other for a little while. So it's, I'm excited to just see what is in his mind and how this will, will all meld for um, a seamless evening. Daniel Bernard Romain, DBR. <laughs> and, and, and that's the one that has a libretto by uh, Anna Devere Smith, just to get that yeah. out there. So yeah. trip, triptych of operas, Daniel Bernard Romain, Caroline Shaw, John Luther Adams Post. And Yuval Sharon is directing, which is very exciting. Um, I'm so happy that, as you said, you have a relationship with him already, but I'm yeah. happy that somebody like him uh, knows your work because, you know, he has his fingers in a lot of pies uh, in the contemporary opera world. And I don't know, how do you feel about that? Like entering into this contemporary opera scene? Um, I mean, countertenors are, the standard repertoire for them is gonna be Handel. And anytime somebody wants to try something else, like a Vivaldi opera or a yeah. opera by one of these composers on your debut album, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, it's the extremes. It's that and then the other half or third of what I do is is the really contemporary stuff, kind of Benjamin Britten and on. Uh, I made my debut at the Bayerische Staatsoper this last May, and that was in a microtonal opera by uh, a composer named Georg Friedrich Haas. So he broke pitches down into sixth tones. So you have to sing, you know, it's, it was very, very complicated and interesting in theory. The idea behind it was interesting, but it's just too heady, you know, in terms of performance, I feel like, like it was impossible in opera, which is this very sort of big moving art form to think in that, kind of minutiae, you know, and it, it just didn't, it created an atmosphere, which was very interesting. It was about someone dying and about the aftermath of all of that. So in a way, then the, this kind of very contemporary uh, approach, which is very dissonant and um, worked for that, but it was the hardest opera I've ever learned. I spent months and months and months kind of getting the score into my mind and I would sit and practice it for hours and then think, okay, the next day I'll come back to it and, and I'll, I'll have some of it ingrained, a little bit of it will be in my voice. And it just wasn't because it was this new, entirely new system of composing, um, not like the Western music that we're used to, that's built on half steps and whole steps. So yeah. um, that kind of thing, uh, you know, a few of those is fine, but I don't want to build a whole career on that. But then some music like Caroline's is very, very tuneful. She's a singer herself and mm -hmm. plays violin. And so she approaches it as if she was going to sing it. And you can tell that when you um, when you kind of get inside the music because it's not this kind of like brutal approach. I felt with this other piece, it was like a little bit torturous. It was very challenging and, and it was almost, it almost had the purpose of like just seeing what you could 
be put through, you know. And <laughs> Caroline's music, I think, is much kinder to the singer, which is nice. And it's very loud and it's beautiful. And it still has a little bit of dissonance, but it's it's for the right reasons. You know, it, it accentuates and heightens the point she's trying to make rather than just being kind of a trick. Yeah, I I mean, I don't know that Haas piece, obviously, but um, I think that all composers should uh, know how to sing or yeah. at least work with singers as they're, you know, writing vocal lines, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, you can really tell, you know, which composers do this well. And uh, even composers like Rossini, who, yeah. you know, wrote some of the hardest music, you know, at the core, it's middle voice. It's meant to be sung in stepwise motion. You know, the lines are the right length for the natural breath capacity, you know? Yeah. You have to work hard on your agility and moving the voice and things, the sort of acrobatics of it, but it's not the same kind of harsh approach yeah you know like yeah. it's possible you get it in and once you do it's actually really fun to sing that music and I feel like this other stuff just never quite get quite gets there where and it handles the same too like I just love when it, when you start to get it into your voice and your body and it just you have a fun time singing it sometimes I go into the practice room and I'm uh, in a bad mood and it's impossible to leave in a bad mood after singing for an hour or two because it's just such good stuff that it gets into you, you know? And Rossini is the same way. There's kind of a joy about it. And uh, contemporary music doesn't always have that joy. Even if it's a topic that's not a joyful topic, there still can be kind of the joy behind the composition and the music itself. Well, we don't want this interview to get out and to, for people to not hire you because you don't think you're having a good time. <laughs> well, well, I mean, <laughs> the, truth is, the truth is I love singing contemporary music too. It's just, the motivation behind it, I guess, is the important thing, like where where the music's coming from and then how the composer shapes the way that they write the music around that is the, the issue. So it sounds like you might have flirted with Rossini. Would that be correct? Yeah, a bit. I mean, the the, the Tanti Palpiti, of course. The There's a couple of earlier operas that he wrote. Yeah, Aureliano and Pal Palmyra or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, I, I mean, think has a, yeah. Yeah, I would love to sing some of that on stage. No one ever hires countertenors to do that. I, I don't know quite why. Some of us could, could I mean, do it well, I think. If you were Arsace, it would be such a believable opera. Yeah, <laughs> I would love to do that. I would yeah. love it. Yeah. You see, you see these old productions of Joan Sutherland and Marilyn Horne, and they always have to have the duet scenes where there's a, there's like stairs so that Marilyn Horne could be like up three <laughs> Yeah, um, or have a very, very high plumed helmet with lots yeah. of feathers. She has some presence. Yeah. Um, but this actually leads to the next topic because I think that, you know, based on the way I hear you sing in The Crown, um, that you would be looking to make headway into repertoire that really showcases your tone and the the warmth of your voice. But your second album <laughs> goes the opposite direction. Um, yeah. You are singing lute song with none other than Stephen Stubbs. So, I mean, like, who doesn't want to record with Stephen Stubbs, uh, the yeah. co-artistic director of Boston Early Music Festival, among many other things. Um, but, uh, yeah, you're doing, like, some uh, laws and uh, some air de cour and, uh, I don't know, is there Dowland? No, Purcell. There's and, some uh, Dowland, there's yeah. Purcell, four pieces yeah. by Purcell, yeah. folk tunes, 
um, some Italian arias from the Venetian stage. I just, yeah, so the the sort of the original original theme behind it was that I do all this big operatic stuff and I also love singing the intimate things, you know, and I just didn't have a lot of that out there. I wanted to do an album showcasing the kind of softer side of what I can do, this sort of salon style rather than singing in a big opera house uh, with more nuance and more sort of um, just soft singing and, and softer kind of dramatic approach as well. And then uh, this idea of like just approaching the music of the time, but looking at a lot of sides of the music. So I didn't want to just do a Dowland album, for example, which is easy. I mean, you could find enough Dowland to easily do several albums if you wanted to. But I got intrigued by the idea of what what music was really around at the time and, and like what Dowland might have heard walking down the street in terms of these folk tunes and things and how that might have influenced his compositions. And so I just wanted to get a very broad take on this idea of love sickness and like with different languages different approaches from different countries different styles of music and then just weave that all together which i think we did pretty successfully and working with steven was amazing he's so fantastic we just had a great time and um yeah so it was nice because i felt like we were really making music you know i feel like i saw some branding for this album somewhere as being like the anti-valentine's day album yeah well, it was, yeah <laughs> Like if Valentine's didn't work out for you, you know, yeah. <laughs> then you can listen to these tunes because it is a lot of the sadder. Um, but there was this idea in the 17th century that you could just go ahead and, and be in that space. You know, you could kind of enjoy the melancholy. If that's how you were feeling, you could just feel it. And so it's an hour, an hour long album of of just kind of going to that place and and reveling in the sadness of, of being beautiful hardened. suffering. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that the uh, relationship with Stephen Subs might, you know, result in other opportunities to see you in the U.S. in Baroque Opera. Would be wonderful. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> uh, because we are a sports-themed show, we always like to ask, do you have any, like, favorite team or favorite athlete or favorite sport that you play yourself? I mean, it seems like maybe I would because I am this sort of bodybuilder guy. But uh, so I guess that if that's a sport, we could yeah. talk about bodybuilders and I keep track of them. Um, but like, you know, football, baseball, it's, it's I don't really I don't really spend too much time in that world. I grew up in Colorado, so maybe I should say the Broncos because when I was young, everyone's. That's OK. You don't have to be artificial about <laughs> it. But, but what we always like to do here on this show is to try to connect, you know, this with sport with what we do as singers and I'll I'll talk for a little bit so you can start thinking about how you can relate your bodybuilding or the bodybuilders you follow yeah. uh, to the art that you make yeah no the well that I definitely see a lot of connections there like when I'm in the gym it's very similar to being in the practice room in terms of how I structure things you know like I spend time warming up and preparing myself to do the actual thing and you spend maybe 10 10 minutes just sort of warming everything up getting ready and then when you sit down and you're you know doing a bench press or something you have to know what you're capable of doing before you do it so you sort of choose the right weight and the amount of reps that you think it's possible to do and you don't want to hurt yourself and that's a little bit like choosing the right repertoire to sing like you don't want to I wouldn't want to go and sing some big Wagner or something it just wouldn't be appropriate for my voice um 
So I have to know my own limits and be self-aware about what I can accomplish uh, vocally as well as in the gym. So I see a lot of like kind of mental connections. And when I'm in the gym, I spend an hour working as hard as I can, pushing, trying to be really focused and getting as much out of it as I can, which is the same way that I approach my singing too. And there's a, the, I think this idea of focus is an important thing that can connect both singing and sport too. But there's no like release like you have in performance, like where you, um, you know, you get to show what you've done. And of course we want to achieve the same level that we achieve in the practice room on stage. Yeah. But, um, yeah, but it, I guess with with working out, it's like, well, you're just walking around wearing shirts that show off your guns, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I thought about, I, for a while, I was thinking about doing competitions as a like bodybuilding, just because when I do something, I'm really committed to it. And I want to kind of follow through to the to the highest level that I can and learn as much about that thing as I can. You know, it's just why I also have a PhD, because I got interested in this topic. And I just went down a, a rabbit hole and and wanted to know as much as I could about it. So bodybuilding is a little the same. Like when I started really getting serious about it, I thought, oh, I should do some competitions, you know, but what you have to do to your body in order to be a good competitive bodybuilder just doesn't fit with being a good opera singer to take it to that extreme. So pretty quickly, I realized that wasn't going to be happening. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure your costume designers don't want all that oil and their... <laughs> <laughs> Well, 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 Randall Scotting, we're going to close by listening to uh, something from Lovesick. This is uh, Oh Solitude, the solitary uh, practice of being in the gym and of being in the practice room <laughs> in song. <laughs> Randall, yeah. thank you so much for being on Offer Box Score. Thank you. My pleasure. Randall Scotting with lutenist Stephen Stubbs performing a little bit of Purcell for us all. Thank you so much, Randall, for being our guest. Man, I, I want to meet Randall in the gym and have him spot me on those weights. <laughs> I might, I might learn a thing or two. <laughs> he could probably use you like as like the dumbbell, oh, dumbbell. George. <laughs> <laughs> steady, steady. Hey, look, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Ditcher and Spotify. Just click follow, and then on Apple Podcasts, hit the plus sign. Chalk Talk is next. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. All right, folks, it's that time of year again. We are starting to hear those season announcements, and one of the big ones just hit this past week, and that, of course, was from the Metropolitan Opera in New York. And this is a very weird season for the Met. Um, this is, uh, of course, we covered before because of their, you know, recent dip in budget and uh, concerns over ticketing, COVID pandemic, all that stuff. This is they're only going to be presenting 18 operas this season, which is the lowest Yikes. number they've had in four decades. And the only reason it was that low in the uh, early 80s was because of a strike. So <laughs> so this is um, <laughs> it's the good old days of in in addition to um, the fact that it's only 18 operas, two of those arguably are, well, one of those arguably is not an opera. 
And one of those is definitely not an opera. That's actually, they're doing a Verdi's Requiem, which they are counting as one of the 18 um, unstaged, as far as I know, which is uh, interesting. Uh, of course, part of their strategy, which we also covered uh, a few weeks ago, or maybe a couple months ago at this point, is that they're going to uh, really lean into living composers, which is exciting. And I, I, I that's something that we've wanted the Met to do for a while. Um, what I will say is that these new operas are not brand new works. None of these are uh, premieres, um, but they're time-tested pieces, even if, you know, that time was much more recently <laughs> than, than their usual repertoire. So let's start off with their new-ish operas that are right. also new productions. Um, they're bringing in Jake Heggie's Dead Man Walking uh, with Joyce DiDonato. Um, uh, in, and uh, and starring... Ryan McKinney. And Ryan McKinney. And we have uh, to just pause you right there. Not friend of the show, Michael Mays, who has sung that role literally <laughs> all over the world yeah. for the most important audiences. I do not understand. I mean, Ryan McKinney, I don't know you. You're probably a great guy, but I do not understand why Michael Mays was not cast in this. It's a shame. <laughs> they wanted Ryan McKinney, I guess. Uh, we also have Latonia Moore uh, and Susan Graham. Uh, Yannick will be conducting that. Now, I think, you know, this is a new production. I really like Dead Man Walking. I'm excited to to see it. But it is probably the safest new quote unquote opera I could possibly think of, um, which, you know, is fine. Um, but I think that's kind of a theme we'll see going forward. Well, here. The, the daring part for the Jake Heggie selection is in the director, which is Eva Van Hova. Uh, right, who right. Is that's true. Dutch, I think. So, I mean, his aesthetic is incredibly pared down. You see his work in the opera houses in Europe or if it's on Broadway, it's like a blank wall and a blank floor and one prop. So, I mean, that might how, sound very attractive to the Mets budget right now. With well, and it can be operas. it can be effective. He's currently doing the oh, Don Giovanni, sure, yeah. which is running there right now. It's a relatively sort of blank canvas that he's on. My question here is twofold: is, is first of all, is that sort of aesthetic going to work for something like Dead Man? Dead Man, yeah. Can that piece really hold up to a sort of a, a concept like that? But secondarily, I'm always concerned. When European directors try and tackle relatively American topics like the death penalty, and I'm mm. not sure the the depth of understanding that that is going to be brought to this production. I, I, look, Van Hova is obviously a smart guy, brilliant director. I'm a big fan. How is that going to relate to what I think is a very American story? Mm, that's a good point. That's a good point. I'd still be interesting to see, uh, interested in seeing the take. I, I like the opera a lot. Uh, I think more interesting is the next uh, new opera, uh, which is going to be uh, Anthony Davis's X, The Life and Times of Malcolm, Malcolm X. Um, that's going to have Will Liverman in the title role as alongside Leah Hawkins, uh, Rayanne Bryce Davis, uh, bass baritone Michael uh, Samuel, or is it Samuel? I might have mistyped that Samuel, one. Michael Samuel. <laughs> Samuel. Uh, and we got uh, tenor Victor Ryan Robertson, Kazim Abdullah will be conducting. Uh, the director is Robert O'Hara. I'm really excited excited to see this opera on the Met stage. This is one that I think um, uh, all of Anthony Davis's works, really, um, he had a bit of a surge in popularity about 30 years ago now, and he's kind of languished in obscurity uh, until um, the whole, uh, until everyone realized that, you know, black composers should be going on, you know, last year, uh, <laughs> much too late. Um, but I'm really excited to see this on the Met stage. I think it'll be really interesting. Um, this is a highlight of the season for me. 
perhaps less of a highlight for me, we've got Daniel Catan's Florencia uh, in El Amazonas. Um, it will be directed by Mary Zimmerman, whose work I really like, uh, and I know George is a big fan. Well, here's here's the same comparison with this be- between Dead Man Walking, right? Is like it's not right. a super exciting choice, but it's very magical. And if there's one thing that Mary does well, it is theatrical magic my guess is is that this production is probably going to be more than the sum of its parts Mm. and that mary zimmerman is going to bring something very special and unique and put that into the hands of island perez yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't count this production out uh because of its cast eileen perez as florencia i think it might be a role debut for her and the cast also includes gabriela reyes i believe reprising i forget the name of the role the same role she sang here in chicago um, opposite Ana Maria Martinez and Reyes is phenomenal. So I would actually be very excited to see that one. Yeah, it's, it's a good cast. I, I, as I'm not a huge fan of Daniel Catan's work, but I think Florencia is the best thing I've seen from him. So I, I, I would love to see it. And I think Eileen Perez, friend of the show, will knock it out of the park. <laughs> the big one that I, of course, am excited about, this is the, the highlight of the whole season for me, is uh, El Nino uh, by John Adams. As you all know, big El Nino head over here. Mm-hmm. Um, this is uh, this is an opera oratorio, so really kind of stretching that definition of uh, of eighteen operas, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, however, this one will lend itself well to staging. I think um, it's the a great pro- choice. It's, it's the production's directed by Liliana Blaine Cruz. Sorry, Weston, I just cut you off. It's yeah, in a med- debut. Puppets by puppet designer James Ortiz, Marin Alsop on the podium. Julia Bullock, Devon Tynes, great Simon cast. Chung, Kiman Mara. It's great that this piece is being done because mm-hmm. uh, you know, staging oratorio has merit. It has value. And uh, this piece is not done a lot. And I'm really excited to see what happens with this. Yeah, I absolutely love this piece. And I think it, this is this is a, a piece on the scale that feels like it should be uh, done by an opera house the size of but the But you Met. also said that so casually, George. Kiman Mara is making his Met debut. Yeah, and he's yeah, still, it's, it's so he's exciting. He's still in his 20s, I think, that guy. So it's yeah, wild. Show. That's amazing. He got the uh, OBS also, bump, you know. That, that ends all of the uh, brand new operas that are new productions. We also have a new <laughs> None production. None of them are brand new, just new exactly, to the <laughs> Exactly, we have, uh, we have a couple new productions here for uh, older operas. We've got a Carmen uh, with a production by Carrie Cracknell, whom I do not know at all. Yeah, English theater director mostly um, from the Gate Theater in London and the National Theater as well. She has done opera before. Uh, Berg's Lulu at English National Opera. This is this will be an absolutely a feminist take. It will be pared down, um, and with this cast, uh, this is an exciting choice. Well, Igul Akhmetshina is a rising star. I've not heard her sing. I don't know her work, but she's like all the rage apparently. Uh, but missed opportunity to to put Janae Bridges on that stage singing. <laughs> yeah, Carmen. Yeah, uh, we've also got Piotr Bachala uh, in there, who uh, has done it many times. We've got Angel Blue as Michaela, which will be exciting. We got Kyle Kettleson, bass baritone as Escamillo. I friend think it'll be show. a good production, friend of the show. I think it'll be a good production, but you know, in general, an announcement of a Carmen, even if it's a new production, doesn't excite me too much. Um, La Forza del Destino does excite me a bit more. This is also a new production by Mar- Marius uh, Trelinski. Uh, I could be pronouncing that completely wrong uh with uh lisa davidson um as leonara which is going to be really cool uh 
uh, Brian Yagda, it will be Don Alvaro, um, and Igor Golovetenko uh, as Don Carlo. Um, I think this is going to be a really pretty fire cast, honestly. Um, I don't know uh, the, uh, the the director's work, but this is one that uh, is from the more traditional mold. I would expect this out of a normal season. Um, but, you know, a new production of La Forza is pretty much always welcome in my book. It's not my favorite opera, but Mariusz Trzelinski, uh Polish director, I saw his Parsifal in Berlin. I mean, it's it's like gutsy, pared down stuff. I, I like yeah. the aesthetic and I, I, I don't like the opera, but I, I think this is an interesting hands. We also have uh, the other big theme here because we've, we've gone past the new productions and now we're back to new operas again. But these are quick returns to the stage. They're bringing back Fire Shut Up in My Bones, this time with Ryan Speedo Green. Uh, and they're bringing no. back the hours, which are both were both huge hits for them, and I think both of those operas were the main impetus for making sure the season had so many new or new sounding operas. Uh, I think it's a little uh, odd to bring them back so quickly, you know. Uh, yeah, I we mean, need to put a pin in this because we have to t- talk about this again when it actually happens. Yeah, to see if doing these operas so quickly after they were already done if they will get the same turnout i mean yes maybe they were sold out for those performances but because it was a new thing it feels like no no it feels like you're you're saying it's a novelty is that's why they were popular because they were a novelty no they're well no i mean they're popular because they're good so they're good but i i people will go people will go did you see the hours Okay, the hours wasn't good, but Fire Shut Up in My Bones was good. Okay, yeah, Fire Shut Up in My Bones is great. This feels like bringing them back so quickly. Um, Peter Gelb does this thing, which I like to call um, Broadway brain sometimes, where he uh, he gets he he wants sometimes it feels like he wants to make the Met uh, a Broadway space so badly. Um, and, and he, he kind of, he tries to bring things back really quickly, uh, even bringing on Kelly O'Hara, no hate to her. She did a phenomenal job, but like, you know, it's really that sort of like aiming. I, I, sometimes it feels like he's aiming for a Broadway crowd, which will be like, I saw this cool thing last year. Let's go see it again this year. Um, and I think it could be a strategy for making money. I don't know how much I jive with that artistically. Um, but, uh, we'll see how it goes. I'll be really interested to see if it performs as well. Um, the second time around so quickly, uh, then we get into, I, mean, the... I don't want to be mistaken. I thought the hours was actually good. I didn't care yeah. for the production, but I thought the opera itself was good. So, yeah. Um, then we get into the, I think the less interesting stuff, uh, we'll kind of rapid fire a few of these here. These are all revivals. They're bringing back Nabucco for the first time in a while, which will be, uh, pretty nice. They're bringing back La Rondine with, uh, Angel Blue, which will be kind of fun. And uh, Jonathan Tettleman, who, uh, is making his Met debut. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, they're bringing back, you know, they're bringing back Boheme, you know, Unballo and Mascara, Tannhäuser, Magic Flute, Madame Butterfly, Turandot, Romeo and Juliet uh, of Gounod, um, which are all fine pieces, but nothing that gets me out of bed. Some good artists appearing in those. We've got people like Roberto Alagna, Charles Castronovo, Christina Gerke, uh, who's going to be amazing in whatever she does. Elsa found in Heaver, Quinn Kelsey, seeing some friends of the show, Matthew Polinsani. Um, one kind of weird one, of course, is the Verdi Requiem, which I feels like a cheap cop out to call it one of the 18 operas. 
Uh, one exciting revival I do want to point out and spend a little bit more time on here is uh, Gluck's Orfeo, um, which is going to uh, be revived with Anthony Roth Costanzo as Orpheus, uh, soprano yeah. Ying Fang as Eurydice, mm-hmm. of the show. and Alina Vialon uh, as Amor. <laughs> hey, Friend of the show. Look uh, at that. We, okay, so if you want that OBS bump. Uh, I, I think that's going to be <laughs> Proof. a really cool production. Really excited to see it. And I, I think this is a smart use of uh, of the Met of the Mets, you know, looking back at its roster and like saying Anthony Roth Costanza was associated with one of the biggest hits of the past few years, Akhenaten. Let's bring him back uh, and really like um, like put him on all the promotional material, which is kind of interesting because none of these other revivals I've really seen much in the promo material I see online, the ads. But I'm already seeing Anthony Roth Costanzo uh, yeah. for this look, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah, well, he's a stage animal, you know. Yeah. Oh, he and, is. And, he's great. And Ying Fang is maybe the best technician so in her good. box right now. Right. So Here, here's what you're not seeing, right? Is that you're not seeing operas by women composers right so the Mm -hmm. met has a total of two operas by women the most recent from 2016 and as sarah kirkland snyder put it on facebook she said look there's many brilliant successful market tested operas by women composers that are being ignored these are operas Mm -hmm. that have won pulitzer's awards acclaim you know and and so it's not just a missed opportunity it's 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 insulting It, it almost feels like Peter Gelb doesn't think female composers have been invented. <laughs> I mean, he uh, I think what we want to like remind ourselves of here is that the Met is going into this brave new world of new ish operas uh, in a kind of an opportunistic way. This is what um, this is what the market is dictating for the Met. The, uh, this is the kind of thing that we've been clamoring for for such a long time. Yeah, but, but they're works, not doing there's... it ideologically. They're not. They're not doing it because it's important to bring new voices in. They're doing it because it seems to be selling tickets, which is yeah. kind of a disappointing reason to do it. Yeah. Um, I am glad they're doing it. Don't get me wrong. Uh, especially like you know, um, uh, Life and Times of Malcolm X. I think that's a great one to put on the Met stage. That is important. But I, I really, really. It was it was it was weird to me to read yeah. um, the list of Met Met operas that were that were all these newer operas by living composers and still feel kind of disappointed. Look, um, so female directors, yes, the roster yes, I will give has some representation on that. That does not take away the problem of the lack of female composers. When we get to the opera Philly announcement later in the show, you're going to see a marked contrast on that very point. I just want to say yeah. before we close this out that uh, you opera companies of New York area, uh, there's an opportunity now here for you to not only do <laughs> works by female composers, but also <laughs> to find the gaps in the Met season and be that place for American tourists, not American tourists, but tourists coming to America who are looking for opera, who are looking for art. Yeah. Uh I think it's a shame that they're reducing their season. I understand why they have to do it. But, you know, New York should be a place where you can see a standard mm-hmm. yes. repertoire opera any mm-hmm. day of the week, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. with good singers. And there are plenty of good singers in New York, so you can do it, you know. Let yeah. us know what you think about the Mets upcoming season. You can just send us a voice memo. You can email us your hot takes. Either way, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get the OBS beer coaster. And the lapel pin for letting us know what you think about the Mets season. Lots to talk about. 
on that and in the two-minute drill. This just in the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Russian base Ildar Abdrazakov is speaking out against the Met, quote, out of solidarity with his colleagues Anna Netrebko and Hibla Gertzmava. The base added, I just paused my relationship with the Metropolitan Opera myself. I canceled participation in La Forza del Destino and Gounod's Romeo et Juliet. The way the theater treated them is beyond. My deep conviction is that people of art should remain neutral and thereby continuing to knight peoples and countries with their art. To unite peoples, yes. Peter Gelb has <laughs> responded that Netrebko and Gerzamova chose a side and they chose the wrong side. I feel sorry that Abrazakov, like many other Russians, are so misinformed and don't really understand what's going on in the world. End quote. At the Mets concert for Ukraine, Emily D'Angelo's dress was covered with 365 tally marks, recording each day of Europe's bloodiest conflict since World War II. Met music director Yannick Nezé-Sege conducted for Ukraine the concert of remembrance and hope that featured the Ukrainian national anthem, Mozart Requiem, Beethoven V, and Valentin Silvestrov's hymn, Prayer for Ukraine. The Mets' current production of Lohengrin, directed by Francois Girard, was originally a co-production with the Bolshoi Theater, but everything changed when Putin attacked Ukraine and Peter Gelb immediately severed ties with the Russian company, leaving the production in jeopardy. And so the Met did the only logical thing, build a second identical set for a million dollars and put the show on anyway. <laughs> Opera Philadelphia has announced its 23-24 season, including listings for Festival O23 and the world premiere of a Rene Orth opera about journalist Nellie Bly, as well as the American premiere of The Listeners by, hey, Missy Mazzoli and the world premiere of Woman with Eyes Closed by, hey, Jennifer Higdon. More details after the drill. Agba has filed a dispute against New York City Opera for multiple violations of the union's collective bargaining agreement. In a letter to Agma members, the union warns that New York City Opera's refusal to operate in good faith leads us to caution our members before accepting work with NYCO. The union can no longer say with confidence that AGMA members who sign a contract with NYCO will have the terms of those contracts fulfilled in a respectful, timely manner. I thought NYCO was dead and gone. Crunching the numbers, the Bayreuth Festival will see a significant reduction in its next year's budget. The Society of Friends of Bayreuth has decided to cut its contribution to the festival by almost 1 million euros starting in 2024. <laughs> That's a third of its annual donation. More like acquaintances of Bayreuth now, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Paris Opera announced it will invest 7.2 million euros in fixing the Palais Garnier's facade for the result of pollution and other climate-related wear <sighs> and tear. The project will feature cleaning, replacing degraded elements, restoring sculptures, and installing a state-of-the-art anti-pigeon system. Yes. Ooh. Gunther Groisberg has canceled his engagements with the Met in order to stay close to his family. Quote, it's always a bit disappointing when the new season is announced and you are not part of the roster, but it was my decision to stay a bit more in Europe with my family in 2023 and 2024. It's definitely the darkest side of our job. In trade news, Omer Meyer Velber will become Hamburg Staatsoper's general music director and chief conductor of the Hamburg Phil, beginning with the 25-26 season, following on from Kent Nagano. 
Velber will remain as music director of the Folks Oberveen until 2027. On the disabled list, soprano Sarah Gartland has been suffering from the after effects of a case of COVID-19, rendering her unable to sing. But she will not withdraw from Opera Colorado's production of Korngold's Die Tote Stadt. Instead, she will act the dual roles of Marie and Marietta on stage while soprano Kara Shea Thompson sings from the pit. Joyce DiDonato has announced that she is canceling her concerts and recording of Carmen due, the, due to the conductor John Nelson's failing health. Quote, let's work not to see this as bad news, but instead welcome the positive news that John's prognosis is strong and that he is surrounded by an incredible community of people who love him. It's Ildar time again. Abjazakov <laughs> is out of Offenbach's Tales of Hoffman at La Scala saying, quote, life makes its adjustments and unfortunately I have to make some cancellations because of family reasons. Mm. The Glyndebourne Festival has announced a cast change for its production of Dialogues of the Carmelites. A source close to the situation told the Daily Telegraph, trusted news source, an unexpected opportunity arose which was impossible for Daniel Denise to refuse. Denise, who is set to sing the role of Blanche de la Force, will be replaced by Sally Matthews. Exit stage right, conductor Caspar Richter has died unexpectedly at the age of 78. The German conductor, who got his start as an assistant to Lauren Mazel, went on to a permanent position at Wiener Staatsoper and founded the orchestra at Theater an der Wien. And on this day, February 27th in 1649, it was the baptism of German composer Johann Philipp Krieger. In 1709, Alessandro Scarlatti's opera Il Teodosio premiered in Naples. In 1709, French baritone François Lepage was born. He created a number of roles in Rameau operas. Niccolo Piccinini had two premieres on this date. In 1766, his opera La Baronessa di Montecupo premiered in Rome. And in 1778, his Roland in Paris. 1813 was the first performance of Rossini's Il Signor Bruschino in Venice. In 1849, Verdi had a premiere, La Battaglia di Lengano, in Rome. In 1888, German soprano and famous teacher Lottie Lemon was born in Perleburg. Her pupils include Janet Baker, Grace Bumbry, Madeleine Dobbs, Marilyn Horn, Gerard Suzet, Shirley Verrett. And she created roles such as Ariadne in Ariadne of Naxos, Barak's wife in Die Frau in a Schatten, and Christine in Intermezzo. In 1913, Walter Darmosch's opera Cyrano de Bergerac, Cyrano de Bergerac premiered at the Met. 1935 was the birth of the great Mirella Freni in Modena. And in 1986, Udo Zimmermann's opera Weisse Rosa premiered uh, at in Hamburg. That was on February 27th, 1986. And that's your two-minute drill. I don't think I have to tell you what the role of the marshalling has meant in my life as an artist. I have sung all three roles in Rosen Cavalier. First as a young beginner, Sophie, later as the bearer of the rose, Count Octavian, and then the Marshalline. And uh, it is this a very nostalgic feeling that I have to watch K. McCutton to something which I would like to do if I have a voice. Okay. Just a little bit of Lottie Lehmann intimidating her student in a masterclass <laughs> before they even get up to sing. That was from the Music Academy of the West in 1961. Oh. Yikes. Oh, my goodness. These season announcements just... They, it happens earlier and earlier. Every year, it feels like. I, I don't know. But we, do, we want to start with um, Opera Philadelphia here in the drill. Start with O23. Starts with... A new opera from composer Rene Orth and librettist Hannah Moscovich. This is uh, 
called 10 Days in a Madhouse, which is inspired by the real-life story of Nellie Bly, a mm. reporter from the end of the 19th century. That uh, includes Christian Which could also Horm. be a description of the old festival itself, 10 Days in a Madhouse. So. It kind of is. <laughs> yeah. It kind of is, right? Uh, Simone Bocanegra, excuse me, Bocanegra is the production with Christian Van Horn. I am, man, all over the shop. <laughs> Later on in the festival, Karim Suleiman's Unholy Wars, which is uh, a project inspired by Monteverdi's Tancrede e Clorinda. That's directed by Kevin Newbury. Okay. Friend of the so show. that's going to be really Let's cool. Just, just take a pause right here. Um, there, they the O Festival usually has a centerpiece opera, some new thing like world premiere. Like last year was uh, the David T. Little um, Black Lodge, um, and the year before it was uh, that uh, thing about computers, <laughs> Katya, Katya and something. Um, yeah, Dennis, Dennis, Dennis and Katya, Katya Dennis and Katya. Yeah. yeah. So this year, the main stage opera for the festival, the centerpiece opera, is Simon Bocanegra with right. Anna Maria Martinez and Quinn Kelsey and Christian Van Horn. So That's that in and of itself is like a reason to check out mm. the festival. Oh, absolutely. The world premiere is this uh, woman-centric show, t- 10 Days in a Madhouse. Right. And one of the sort of satellite performances is this thing from friend of the show, Karim Suleiman, which I believe premiered at Spoleto or one of those... Uh, Fast Tango, whatever, like something yeah. like last year, and people love it, and it's already a uh, qualified success. And then uh, following that, we go from there to anonymous, the anonymous lover, which is their official. From... That's their official season now. Yeah, this exactly. is their official season, I should say. Yeah. Uh, uh, which is, uh, of course, the Joseph Boulogne's, uh opera, which is having a moment right now. Just had its uh, debut recording from Haymarket here in Chicago, uh, and uh, <laughs> and he's really having a moment now because there's also the movie coming out uh, pretty mm-hmm. soon as well which based on the trailer looks like it might not be very good, but we'll find out. Uh, (laughs) uh, They're going to have Simone Harcum uh, making her company debut as Leontine in that opera, along with tenor Matthew White. Um, And uh, the main season will close the Academy of Music with a new production of Madame Butterfly, uh, bringing in director Aria Umezawa, um, which will kind of deconstruct the sort of Orientalist um, uh, vibes of the original, uh, which I think will be really, really interesting. Um, and I she's think a, it'll she's be... A pheno- she's a phenomenal director. And here's why yeah, this yeah. is a great hire. It's going to be right? Act Two first, right? Is it... backwards. <laughs> <laughs> We've done, we done that, right? So uh, I think I'm right in saying that Arya identifies as Japanese-Canadian. Now, and I've heard her say this on record, is, is typically she is brought in to direct these productions of, say, Turndot and Madden Butterfly. Mm-hmm. I would argue ostensibly to kind of, like, take the curse off these pieces. But look, we have this, like, you know, Japanese-Canadian director directing them. But she, what she's able to do is is go further and say, okay, that that's not why we're in this business. Here's what we're doing. And so she uses framing devices specifically on butterfly framing devices to make sense of the the factual errors that are in puccini's representation of japanese culture and to really dig into those and to make them uh interesting and engaging to watch but also to put a real point of view on this problematic piece 
So yeah, we're sort of like all over the place with this announcement. I'm sorry so much, Opera Philadelphia, for not doing this like <laughs> in the right order. So the season begins that after the festival, uh, the season begins in the winter with Anonymous Lover. Then in the spring is Madame Butterfly. Then we have um, these uh, other shows, the Missy Mazzoli. Where, where do these things fit? Uh, I mean, I'm not entirely sure, but this is what happens when Opera Philadelphia doesn't pay us to talk about them. We, we just kind of like uh, go in, you know, scattershot, talk about whatever we want. I'm really excited about this Look, opera. The interesting this is... stuff rises to the top, right? Like that's that's the business that we're exactly. in. Exactly. Is... And I, this is a really, really cool piece because it's, it's it's a collaboration between Missy Mazzoli and, uh, of course, friend of the show, Royce Vavrick. Um, and uh, they've they've done uh, they've done other stuff together, including Breaking the Waves, which almost made it to to, to Chicago before. Um, okay, this uh, the is pandemic this is why down. Oliver's confused about when these the Mazzoli and the Higdon are happening, is because they're not until O twenty four, and Opera Philadelphia's fiftieth anniversary season. Okay, oh. so they're they're already teasing. Things that are going to happen. Exactly. And they teased you, man. They got you. You've been okay. teased. So there's a Missy Mazzoli and a Jennifer, Jennifer Higdon mm-hmm. are going to be part of O24. That is correct. Which uh, is woman with eyes closed. Okay. Specifically. Oh, man. I was so confused. Okay. Got it. <laughs> Clear got as it. mud. Got it. All right. Despite well, the confusion, I think the thing to focus on with this is that, you know, this feels this is what like new opera done right is. And like confusing, you know, <laughs> confusingly. Uh, I mean, n- no, I mean, uh, we did a terrible job, but Opera Philadelphia is not doing a terrible okay. job. No, but George they're... was right when he said that the announcements keep coming earlier and earlier. Like we're getting yeah. this announcement a full like 18 we weren't months. Prepared. Thank you, gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, we better talk about somebody else <laughs> besides Philadelphia. Well, we can uh, talk about another disaster, Ildar Abdrazakov, real no, quick. No, wait, wait. The Opera Philadelphia is not a disaster. No, no. We're a disaster. Um, We're the disaster. Yeah. Okay, good. But uh, they could be a disaster <laughs> if they don't get us plane tickets this year. So Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and hotel rooms. Ildar, Ildar, uh, Ildar. What are we going to do with you, Ildar? So basically what happened was there was a, an article written somewhere that pointed out that Ildar Drazikov has some connections to um, the Putin government, which is not surprising with a lot of high-profile Russian singers. Um, and uh, basically on the heels of that and, of course, the one-year anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine, um, he announced that he was pulling out of the Met and uh, for ostensibly to support Anna Trepko and, and company, but also kind of because he feels like he might be next on the chopping block. I believe uh, he also recently announced that he was going to do a concert at which like Putin would be present, perhaps even uh, in Russia. Um, and it's, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, he's, you know, throwing a bit of a tantrum to so to a certain extent. I think that, you know, not I mean, we did bash Peter Gelb quite a bit earlier, but, you know, uh, he he is choosing a side here. Um, and well, he's choosing I, his wife's side. <laughs> uh, I think that there's a certain uh, I, I think the there's something that, you know, raises the hair on the back of my neck whenever I hear that. um Whenever I hear that, you know, art should be neutral. Like it, it, it shouldn't be. It and honestly, be. I, I kind be. of, 
you know, as much as I do not agree with anything uh, to do with uh, the war, at least the the uh, peop- the singers who are outspoken, like pro Putin, whatever, like at least they're not like, you know, at least they're, you know, using their art to like further like an end, you know, even if it's the wrong one, you know. Neutral art is a myth. It just doesn't exist. And I think that, you know, that's something that has to be reckoned with if you're going to be an artist, quite honestly. And meanwhile, we have Emily D'Angelo, who is being very political in and of herself. Exactly. Cheers to her. I mean, not that it takes whatever ball to do something at a concert that's, you know, concert for Ukraine, but still, like... She's making her position very clear, you know. Yeah, she's doing which, which is what I would fashion. expect out of Emily D'Angelo. Yeah. She's such yes. an intelligent uh, presence whenever she's uh, whenever she's putting together a concert or participating or or helping program something. Uh, in addition to her, you know, phenomenal voice, <laughs> but uh, is, she's great. This is why I was confused about the. Um... Francois Girard production of Lohengrin. Because it, <laughs> it's a co-pro with the Bolshoi. Right. The set couldn't make it to the Met because of the U.S. embargo on goods coming well, in from it's, Russia. It's even weirder than that because um, essentially uh, the I believe the production was originally premiering at the Bolshoi. Peter Gelb was actually at, Bolsho- at the Bolshoi when the invasion started for this production. Okay. Um, and uh, the war started and uh, he flew home a day early um, and, you know, made the decision before I think even any uh, sanctions were in about this kind of thing, made the decision that they were not going to, you know, have any ties with the Bolshoi. Um, but they wanted to still put the production on because, of course, okay. they, you know, have... Okay added funds hired people you know right so, so then they go like, on and they build this identical replica of the set and that's why they only have 18 operas this year <laughs> exactly a million dollars man yeah he's great um the fact that uh joyce donato was planning on singing and recording carmen is like question mark uh, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't doubt that she could, she could, you know, do whatever she wants, but it's not exactly the voice type you imagine singing Carmen. No. So maybe I, you I, want, it, it yeah. would, it but, would definitely be a, a take on it. it wouldn't might be a yeah. standard Carmen, but yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I would say her voice is even lighter than Teresa Braganza's and Teresa Braganza ended up being the Carmen of her generation. So who are we to say? Yeah. Um, yeah. Last quick hit we should do on, um, Danielle Denise getting, uh, you know, an opportunity that makes her withdraw from Glyne. <laughs> an Warren. offer she couldn't refuse. Yeah. I think <laughs> that, you know, when you are married to, you know, Mr. Glyndebourne, <laughs> basically whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. Let us wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. All right. I, I think I understand what's happening in Upper Philadelphia for the next two years, though, now. Okay. <laughs> You've done I'm, it. I'm, I'm that could sure. be your good call. That's the good call. <laughs> That's my good call. But Oliver, you get to go first with a good call or a bad call to wrap this show up. So it's week two of my uh, full submersion in uh, Thomas Dunford recordings. And earlier today, I got to interview Thomas Dunford for my other job. And he was very, very like a lute player, exactly how I expected him to be. Um, just sort of aloof and like rushing from one gig to the next. He had to talk to me while he was like in an Uber 
And sometimes his Uber <laughs> driver was talking and like I could hear him uh, over the phone. And then he was like walking in the street and like some woman from like Senegal was like shouting at him. So uh, it was a very interesting interview. But uh, to prepare, I've been listening to all of his records. And uh, I think you called it out, Wesson, when it came out. But the Amazona uh, album that oh, he recorded with Leodisandra is awesome. But I've been listening to the the newest one, the Yeston Davies and Leodisandra mm, also handle. Which is just stunningly beautiful. If you haven't heard it yet, it's called Eternal Heaven. And it's, I don't want to say it's a banger because I don't want you to think it's going to be fun. It's just a very deeply felt, beautiful, mm. beautiful album. Weston Williams. I have a, a, a banger myself. So uh, in these post-COVID more or less times, um, uh, there was a uh, apparently some consternation in Tokyo about how to get audiences back to opera. So uh, director Daniel Kramer collaborated with Team Lab, uh, which is a Japanese group known for digital art installation projects, uh, have come together to do what I'm calling laser Turandot. Uh, it's Turandot, but with lasers. It's what it sounds like. Uh, there's a Reuters story floating around the internet. You can, uh, I think you could probably just Google Turandot lasers. We'll probably also put it on the website. We'll, we'll put a but link, you can yeah. take a look at it, and it is just, it, it is a laser light show, and it is also Turandot. And there's something that tickles me so deeply about that as a concept. But I would absolutely go and see it. So, like, you know, it, if it's working, it's working. You do Chris, you, Daniel. Boy, Daniel Gramer, he's a good friend of mine. He, I Look at the photos. We'll, we'll put a link on the and, on the and website. look at the photos of Randall Scotting. There you go. <laughs> uh, the fi- Ashley had a, a good call as well, but it's on Instagram, and I'm not on Instagram, so I'm just going to put a link to that in the show notes. <laughs> check check that out. I, I, sorry, Ashley, I don't understand how it works. Hey, I got a good call as well. The family and I we went to see a, a Saturday matinee downtown in Chicago last weekend of Cats. Finally, I have seen Cats, and it was utterly delightful, and we were singing and dancing all the way home. Next stop, Bad Cinderella. Next stop is the all-woman production of 1776, which is coming to Chicago. That is what's next. And that is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send us that voice memo. Email us your hot takes operaboxscore at gmail.com. Find links to stuff we've talked about at our website, operaboxscore.com. And that's also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Give back to the OBS on our donate page. Your announcer is Norm Waddell. Your creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. And your audio editor is Weston Williams. For our guest, Randall Scotting, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about operas written by women, but only during Women's History Month. We're back with an all-new <laughs> show next week. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more unrefusable opportunities for Danielle Denise. Join us. <laughs> <laughs>